Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Hahn's shoes, bags, and Adderug with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehahn.com. In this episode, we're going back into the archive all the way to 1997 to bring you journalist and author Orville Schell. Since 1970, Schell has been reporting widely on China for mainstream newspapers and magazines like the New York Times, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic, to more academic publications like China Quarterly and Foreign Affairs. He has interviewed on stage everyone from Al Gore to the Dalai Lama. At the time of this lecture, Shell was at work on a book entitled Virtual Tibet, Searching for Shangri-La from the Himalayas to Hollywood. That book and this talk are a kind of response to a cultural phenomenon at the time, a fascination, an idealization even, of Tibet. Movies were being made, Hollywood stars were making high-profile trips to the country, and public activism was peaking. What Shell saw was not a new phenomenon, but one that periodically returns over and over in the West. His question was, why? And so, Shell takes us into the history of Tibet and its fraught relationship with both China and the West, and attempts to sort out what is fact and what is simply a projection of spiritual and political fantasies about the country. And this, to me, is the very definition of the service great writers can provide helping us separate the facts of history and the present day from the dangerous tendency to believe simply what we wish were so. Here's Shell. Well, thank you. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. This is, I think, an appropriate moment uh, to reflect a bit on the what I think we would have to describe as the tragedy of Tibet. Not only has the Chinese president and Communist Party chief Jiang Zemin just been to Washington and been saluted with a 21-gun salute and had a state dinner in the White House, but uh, the president himself will soon uh, travel to Beijing. And this puts the issue of Tibet very much on the front burner. Now, I think it's really difficult to understand to even talk about Tibet without understanding a little bit about China, because it is a, a, a marriage of sorts, uh, perhaps an unfortunate marriage of two societies, uh, we dare not call them two countries, which in many respects simply don't understand each other and never have, and yet they are insolubly bound together in a way which has uh, cast their fates uh, as one. Uh, and it sometimes is very perplexing, I think, to Americans, uh, to foreigners, when they look at the situation, they hear what's happened, and they wonder why doesn't China just take care of it? Why don't they just let China have a little more autonomy, let the Dalai Lama return? Well, it's more complicated than that. It's an incredibly sensitive issue. And I want to tell you a little bit about how it arose, because uh, it's not quite as simple as it may appear from afar. When Mao Zedong finally came to power in 1949, one of the things he was, he was very adamant about was this notion of reunifying China. And this was so important to him because over the last 100 years, since the Opium Wars in the 1840s, China had in effect been pecked apart uh, both by its own centrifugal forces, disunity, warlords, regionalism, but also by foreign powers. Uh, Britain started, actually Portugal started in Macau hundreds of years before. 
Then Britain seized Hong Kong, went up the coast, and all the way up uh, to North China, it began to open up treaty ports. And in these treaty ports like Shanghai, and those of you who have been there will, will know whereof I speak, they established not colonies per se, but what they call foreign concessions, where foreign law, whether it was French, English, German, ruled, they had their own police forces, they had their own tax collecting, uh, they were in a sense mini colonies within China. And this was an extreme humiliation for China, because China had always imagined itself as being central to everything, that it was, in fact, the, the source of much of the culture of Asia, Korea, Japan, Vietnam, uh, Confucian culture. Those countries also adapted Chinese characters. Other countries were related to China through a tribute system. They paid tribute to the emperor, sent missions to Beijing to send gifts and acknowledge, in effect, at least the cultural suzerainty of China. Well, here came the West with superior guns, superior warships, with entrepreneurs just loaded for, for bear, wanting to trade. And, and the Western powers wanted to be treated as, quote, equals. And China had never had that experience before. It had treated no one as an equal. China was superior. China was the center. And it's a cliche to say, but the, the word China in Chinese, Zhongguo, is comprised of two characters. One is the character for central, and the other is the character for country. So it suggests in the most graphic way the, this mindset of China being the, not just the prima inter pares, but the, the center of everything that was known at the time. So when this period of, during the past century of colonial expansion uh, began, and when China began to be pecked away, and you know, th these foreign concessions moved right up the Yangtze River. Uh, they moved inland with the missionaries. One of the great uh, conditions uh, when each time China was defeated was that China not only opened itself to trade, and not only established diplomatic relations with equal ambassadors represented in capitals, but that it allowed missionaries to evangelize uh, within China. This was, again, a cultural humiliation for a country which had imagined that its culture was supreme. Jesus' Christianity was a kind of a heresy. Uh, China, which had always prided itself in orthodoxy, did not take kindly to missionaries. And, and many of you, I wager, had relatives, perhaps parents or grandparents, who were missionaries in China. This was a very profound experience for America. My grandfather, for whom I'm named, was a, a missionary, went to Yale, was a doctor, went to China in 1900 to practice medicine and to evangelize. So from our perspective, this was a kind of a noblesse oblige, but from the perspective of the Chinese, this was a kind of a, an occupation. So when Chairman Mao came to power, uh, he resolved, as all emperors who've started new dynasties have resolved in, in the past, to reunify the motherland. This notion of the motherland is very elemental uh, to China today and was always a sort of an organic part of the prestige and the mythology of a new and powerful emperor to pull back together after periods of disunity all of the disparate pieces that may have flung apart uh, during a period of dynastic breakdown. When Chiang Kai-shek was chased off the mainland, went to Taiwan, Mao dispatched none other than Deng Xiaoping to the southwest of China. He was from Sichuan province, which is right in the foothills of the Himalayas. He went back there again, and they began to occupy Tibet. The Dalai Lama fled to India, and uh, finally an arrangement was made uh, that seemed to guarantee enough autonomy to Tibet to, to, to enable it to, uh, to continue as it had in the past, and he came back. Now, the last the Tibetans had really seen of the Chinese was uh, in 1912, when the last dynasty fell, and the Tibetans threw out the imperial troops. And since then, they'd run things pretty much themselves. 
They had their own money. They had their own postage stamps. They had a telegraph line strung to India. Uh, and in fact, they had fairly robust relationships with, uh, with England uh, through India. They had, in effect, had their own foreign policy. And suddenly, here comes Deng Xiaoping's troops claiming that Tibet is a sovereign part of China. Oh, it was quite a shock. For a number of years, it went along. Uh, China imagined it was liberating Tibet. I mean, what was the, the revolution all about? It was about the idea that, that the presence of China, the workers of China were oppressed. And who were they oppressed by? They were oppressed by the rich capitalists, uh, the landlords, the decadent aristocracy that had for centuries educated themselves, done their poetry, their calligraphy, their paintings, met in this rarefied atmosphere. They were basically in the views of, of, uh, view of Chairman Mao and the Chinese Communist Party bloodsuckers. And China needed to be liberated from this. It also needed to be liberated from its old culture, because this too was a parasitic form of culture. So they arrive in Tibet, and what did they see? They saw a kind of a god king in the personage of the Dalai Lama, chosen through a lot of mumbo jumbo and divination of dreams and, and consulting magical oracles and staring into lakes for visions and uh, all sorts of other rather unscientific modes of selection. They saw a theocracy that had vast estates, and on those estates there were serfs who were basically indentured. And they saw an aristocracy, something like their own uh, scholar gentry class back home that didn't work, did no manual labor, wore funny hats and brightly colored robes and lived a life of luxury while the ordinary people of Tibet lived in rather primitive conditions. And they thought, well, perfect. These people are ripe to join our revolution. And they moved in. Well, when they started to implement their reforms, their, quote, democratic reforms in Tibet, uh, they really failed to appreciate that despite the way things looked up there, there had been no history of rebellion. There had been no history of famine. Basically, this very odd place was unified by Tibetan Buddhism. It was a, an ideology, a religion, a, a common chord between all classes, between the theocracy, the monasteries, the monks, and one out of four Chinese males became a monk. And the peasants, and of course all the nomads. And most Tibetans were nomads, roaming around out on this vast, arid, very desolate wasteland, a space, I might add, that's not as you might imagine it, you know, a cuddly little Buddhist kingdom tucked away up there behind Mount Everest, but it's larger than Western Europe. It's vast, it's huge. And I will get in a moment to how we look at Tibet, because it's a very interesting subject. Now, this is what the Chinese thought they were doing. They thought they would be welcomed as the saviors, and they set about dismantling uh, this old structure. And when the Cultural Revolution hit, uh, it hit China with a vengeance, and it hit Tibet with an equal vengeance. And it was aimed at destroying every vestige of China's old society and Tibet's old society and culture. And this meant literally raising monasteries to the ground, imprisoning monks, lamas, and the people who were the, the sort of the, the leadership of the theocracy. It involved making all sorts of religious practices, which the Chinese communists saw as superstitious, illegal. It involved, in the words of the Chinese communist revolutionaries, a sort of a, a fan shun, which means to turn the body over. This is what China had been through. This, is, this was the model of Mao's revolution. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. The people in the countryside and the people in the city will be equalized. They will break down all the disparities of the old society. Well, I think many of you probably know what an extraordinarily bitter thing this was for Tibet. Uh, I think reasonable estimates are that a million people died. Hundreds of thousands of people were imprisoned. They escaped, became refugees in India and elsewhere around the world. And yet China 
persisted in its reforms. It fundamentally didn't understand uh, what Tibet was about. And what Tibet was about really was not dialectical materialism, even materialism as we know it. What Tibet was about was something very different. It was one of the few places in the world where matters of the soul were the GNP of this land. There was not even a wheel in Tibet in 1949. I think there's one car in Lhasa. There's no roads. Tibet had very little interest in the outside world. Uh, it was concentrated on a kind of an interior reformation. That's really what Tibetan Buddhism is all about, to cultivate oneself, to become a more compassionate, enlightened, sentient uh, uh, human being to gain merit for the next life. But Ma Chairman Mao was out there rearranging the, the furniture outside. He wanted to dress you in a Mao suit. He wanted to get rid of the old buildings, get rid of the old thought, destroy the landlords, rearrange the villages into communes. He wanted to tear China up by the roots and remake it after a utopian vision. And this, of course, was a completely exterior phenomenon. It had nothing really to do uh, with the matter of the soul, of the spirit. In fact, uh, I think communists just fundamentally don't get that element. They don't understand religion. Indeed, when the Dalai Lama went to uh, Beijing in 1954, he imagined himself to be quite friendly to Mao. This was before the reforms had really started to be implemented in Tibet. Um, I did a conversation with him on stage a few months ago, and we talked about this, and I asked him what his attitude was uh, toward the communist revolution. He said, well, you know, uh, as a Buddhist, I believe in equality. And when I saw what the Chinese revolution was uh, propounding, a fundamentally egalitarian-based ideology, I thought this sounds good. And he went to Beijing hoping to work out some sort of rapprochement. But at one point, uh, he said, Chairman Mao turned to him. And this was after you know, many conversations, and he was there for many months. And Chairman Mao said to him, he said, but you know, of course, religion is poison. And he says at that, at that point, he began to realize that there really was a fundamental contradiction at work here. Uh, that it probably wouldn't work out very well. Now, this is really the, what went on between China and Tibet. It was two different worlds sort of sailing over the heads of each other without imputing good or bad motives to either side, and certainly Tibet needed some reforms, uh, and in a certain way, China, I think, had the zeal of any utopian movement and was trying to do good things. They were just locked into a kind of an extremist position. But those are two legs on what really is a triangle. China on the one hand, Tibet on the other. That's two legs. Now the third leg I think is in many ways more interesting to us because it is us. We are them. We are it. We are the third leg on this very curious triangle. And I want to talk a little bit about that tonight because uh, it has great relevance to what happens in Tibet and between Tibet and China because it is the United States' sort of traditional position to apply all sorts of pressure on countries, particularly authoritarian countries, uh, in one direction or another. And we are perhaps the predominant outside force pushing against China in regards to Tibet, sometimes not very successfully, sometimes not very aggressively. But I think that, as I'll describe, the pressure may become more intense. Why? Well, if you look carefully, uh, you begin to see that we are right now on the crest of a, of a sort of a wave. Uh, it's almost a trend, a fad, uh, a fascination with Tibet. And it's manifesting itself most obviously in all of these movies that are coming out about Tibet. A very curious thing has happened. It's something that doesn't happen very often to a foreign policy issue. It didn't happen to Chechnya didn't happen to Bosnia, didn't happen to any number of other really grisly situations uh, that have arisen around the world, Rwanda, Timor, uh, you could name others. This issue of Tibet has leapt over the firewall 
leapt outside the beltway of Washington, leapt right out of the laps of the foreign policy experts, and it's gone Hollywood. And Hollywood is truly, I think, with the possible exception of the American military, the most powerful force in the world today. Uh, you really feel this as you travel around some of the remote parts of the world. I mean, if they know anything, they know Hollywood. You know, they all watch the movies. And now that there are all these, these little sort of miniature cable channels and satellites going up, you can be in the darndest places and walk into some little hut and there is a nomad, you know, watching Baywatch or something. It's just quite staggering. Uh, so this is, a, this is a force not to be trifled with, uh, Hollywood. Now, I'll get in a minute to these movies. I'm writing a book uh, that ends with all these movies, and the book is really about the way we as Westerners have imagined Tibet over the last 200 years. Why do we care about this funny place? What does it mean to us? Why are we so involved? Why are you here? There's, what, almost 3,000 of you. What's up? Well, this is not a new subject for the West. It has a very interesting background. Um, on my desk in my office back in uh, Berkeley, I have uh, piles and piles of books, most of them with old cloth bindings, you know, from 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 50 years ago. And they're all the accounts that I can find. And believe me, there are many. I went down to Powell's this afternoon to see if I could dredge up a few more. Uh, of all the Westerners who over the last couple of centuries have pined to go to Lhasa. Uh, and there are numerous, uh, very fascinating accounts of failed attempts. Many people died. And some of the, the accounts are heartbreaking. And there's a kind of a progression of the fascination which will end up in Hollywood. Uh, and I will describe this to you. Well, it all began back in the 18th century with some missionaries. Uh, it was pretty matter of fact. Some, some Jesuits, some Computians uh, were sent out by the Vatican, of course, as they were all over the world, to save souls, to harvest heathens in the name of the Lord. And a few misbegotten fathers landed in Lhasa, and they struggled away for 10, 20, 30 years. There were some rivalries between them. They didn't get very far. They found a people who were pretty satisfied with their own faith uh, and were a little bit mystified by all this mumbo-jumbo about Jesus Christ and the crucifixion. And, you know, uh, it didn't go down very well. Uh, but these men left some interesting accounts. And as Jesuits often do, they learned Tibetan. They studied the scriptures of Buddhism. And they were in a curious way, at the same time that they were offended by the dirt, the sloth, the cold, the, the primitiveness of Tibet, they were captivated by the people, captivated by the culture. They sensed that something was up. And they often compared it to what they knew back in Italy. The Dalai Lama was the pope, and the monks were the priests. And you could see how they could make an argument. Well, soon enough, they vanished. And the next great wave a fascination with Tibet arose as Britain consolidated the Raj in India. And they began to think, well, perhaps there's a nice route through Tibet into the back door of China to get some trade going. So the East India Company sent up some people, tried to get to Lhasa. Nobody could because the Tibetans were very loath to have anyone come in, as were the Chinese who had emissaries there at the time. They felt that uh, they really needed nothing from the outside world. And they thought it was dangerous to have strange people they didn't understand bumping around in Lhasa. So they were very assiduous about guarding all passes and repelling all borders. So it was very difficult to get to Lhasa. Now, curiously enough, this was also the age of exploration. People were finding the headwaters of the Nile. They were in the Belgian Congo. They were going all over the world exploring, going up the Amazon. This was the era, the, the sort of the halcyon days of British exploration. And the animating principle behind that was basically, you know, if we can't get there, we want to go. Uh, wherever we're not wanted, 
we feel we really need to get there and get there quick because the Royal Geographical Society will fete and celebrate us and Tibet, in a certain sense, was the jewel in the crown of places you couldn't get. And this provoked a whole new generation of explorers uh, and they all wrote books, those who made it back again. And they're all on my desk. Uh, <laughs> but then a curious thing began to happen. In the middle of the 19th century, people thought mountains were cold places, you know, places you certainly would walk around. You would never walk up one if you could avoid it. There was no magic to mountains. They were inhospitable places. Uh, hardly had this sense of majesty that we now, that they now evoke for us. But in, later on in the 19th century, a curious phenomenon began to happen, and you see it in art. Uh, people began to paint landscapes. I mean, they never used to do that. They painted saints, they painted portraits, uh, but they didn't paint landscapes, just empty vistas, natural vistas. There was a kind of a fascination with naturalism and a fascination with mountains. And this arose as people were being sort of snarled up and ground down by the Industrial Revolution, you know, reading Dickens and the mud and the filth and the smoke and the, the destitution of urban life was beginning to come over people. So what happened was a kind of a romanticization of mountains, of solitude, of nature, and people started wanting to go up mountains. And mountaineering was born. Now, you remember that guy they found dressed in a leather suit up in some Austrian glacier uh, about five, ten years ago? Well, this man was not a mountain climber. This guy was you know, hundreds of, I can't remember when, what era he came from, but uh, rest assured he was not up there with his uh, lycra jacket and his uh, Gore-Tex pants. Uh, he was probably trying to chase some sheep down get them off that glacier, and he uh, uh, ended up going to his ultimate reward. Mountains were feared. But now people suddenly found them a challenge. So they began to climb them. Well, all of the British in India, of course, had no Alps. British back in Great Britain had no Alps. Their Alps, it turned out, were the Himalayas. And they had avoided them. They hadn't really been very interested in them. Uh, and one of the things they did, because they couldn't go there, the Tibetans wouldn't let them in, they trained a very interesting group of Indians. Uh, they were called the pundits, and that's where the word pundit comes from. They trained them to go in disguise, dressed as Tibetans, with compasses hidden in their canes, and rosary beads that had the, just the proper number of beads on, not like normal Tibetan rosaries, but so they could count the miles as they walked. And the pundits went all over Tibet and they mapped Tibet for the British. And this was the first acquaintance, really, the first way that they began to fill in the great blank on the map. And then the lure of getting to Lhasa culminated for a moment in 1904 when the British, fearful that the Russians were going to colonize all of Central Asia and that they had some grand plan and had succeeded through a Buryat Mongol and winning over the Dalai Lama, they launched an expedition, a military expedition to Lhasa, uh, the Young Husband Expedition, and they slaughtered a whole army of Tibetans and they reached Lhasa and they forced Lhasa to sign an agreement with them allowing a trade representative and some sort of uh, intercourse between uh, Lhasa and Delhi. Then the door shut again. You couldn't get into, you still couldn't get into Lhasa, and this provoked people more and more. But by this point, there was a new element had been added to the mix, and that was the element uh, that the missionaries had first had quite dismissed, and that was that Tibet was the land of spiritual purity, of spiritual density. It was the land where people really understood uh, what it was that made people tick, and the tendency was for the West trying to escape its materialism, to escape the Industrial Revolution, to escape the malaise of modern life, was to romanticize Tibet as a place of enlightenment, a place where you could understand what your life was about if you could just get to Lhasa. It would unlock the riddle of the universe. It was like Mecca. Uh, it was closed. 
And you remember the role Mecca played uh, amongst explorers who were so fascinated to somehow penetrate the mysterium of this forbidden city. So now Lhasa had a whole new dimension to it. You know, the golden roofs of the Potala, all sorts of mythologies began to build up that this was the riddle of human existence, that Tibetans understood mystical power. They could fly, they could uh, do astral projection, they could, uh, you know, die and come back to life again. There was all sorts of sort of hocus pocus and projections onto Tibet. And then another wave hit. In Europe, Hitler started to march. And as Europe teetered on the brink of World War II and ultimately the Holocaust, a kind of seminal thing happened. And, and uh, probably many of you have read this book and seen this movie, Lost Horizon, came out. And you remember what that was about? Shangri-La. And what was Shangri-La? It was this mythic utopia, hidden away in the Himalayas where no one got old, no one had to work, uh, where the Grand Lama played Rameau and Scarlatti on the harpsichord and read Buddhist scriptures. Uh, it was this hodgepodge of sort of all the elements of West and East, but it was civilization. It was written by a, 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 an Oxford don. It was, it's a very literate, interesting book. And it was his fantasy, his projection of the place that Europe pined for as it headed toward the abyss. And it had a profound effect. That word Shangri-La is still in our minds. In fact, there's a hotel chain out in the Far East called the Shangri-La Hotels. And every night, instead of putting a mint on your pillow, they put a quotation from Lost Horizons. Uh, <laughs> the imputation being that you have arrived in Shangri-La. And you will sleep peacefully. And this is a refuge from the hurly-burly of the, the, the world outside. Um, it's an interesting image to all of us. And you remember what happened when Conway, uh, it was a plane takes off from China, some revolution, and it gets hijacked mysteriously. It lands in the mountains, and the people on it, there are four of them, get taken into Shangri-La. And Conway finally comes out. And when he comes out, he immediately gets old. And the woman he loves, this Manchu woman he's found in Shangri-La, gets old too. And finally, he goes back to England, has a breakdown, and then he returns to Shangri-La. It's all sort of mysterious. Then the movie came out. Now, the movie is fabulous. You really must see the movie because it fits right in with all these other movies. The movie starred, starred Ronald Coleman, an urbane Brit. And it's really uh, quite wonderful because when they arrive in Shangri-La, uh, you know, this is Hollywood's version back in 1937-38. Uh, they filmed it in the Ojai Valley in back of Los Angeles. And the, uh, you know, the equivalent of the Potala, that beautiful fortress, the Dalai Lama's Winter Palace that sits on Red Hill in the middle of Lhasa, was a, uh, it's an amazing building. It looks like, uh, it looks like some sort of a country club uh, golf house that Frank Lloyd Wright's bad apprentice designed. And, uh, you know, there, there are all sorts of fountains, and they arrive, you know, in bearskin coats in the 80-degree California weather. Uh, but never mind, at the time, it was magic. It was magic to people, because we wanted to believe that somewhere in the world there was an escape. Maybe we wouldn't want to go there, but we wanted that mental idea uh, that there was some place that had remained, that had arrogated a special space outside of the nightmare that was gathering at that time that had common sense, civilization, humanity, that had opted out of the world that we all felt so ambivalent about. And I think that element is still very strong in our fascination with Tibet today. It has much to do with why we are, it's a sort of subconscious text for why we are so enamored of this place. Um, also has a lot to do with other things, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Well, so things went along till 1949, till the Chinese came in. And for, I think, Westerners, this was a terribly, sort of a devastating moment in the sense that we were forced to wake from a dream, our dream of Tibet. And this film, which some of you have seen, that was on public television, 
uh, three or four weeks ago that I did about Tibet was called Dreams of Tibet, because I think we do dream about Tibet. The Chinese, in a certain sense, not only occupied Tibet, and not only wreaked havoc and misery on Tibetans, uh, acting out, I might add, a kind of a reverse form of anti-colonialism. I think within the whole experience of China's occupation of Tibet, we see the, the, real, the, the closeness between oppressed and oppressor, colonializer and colonialized, and how one can morph into the other, just as an abused person or abused child often becomes abusive. China, in a way, was acting out its fantasy of becoming a colonial power, an overlord, having its little place full of funny brown-skinned people who it could bring civilization and enlightenment to and bully around. Um, sad, but perhaps true. Anyway, uh, as the Chinese came in, we had our dream this ripped open. Our privilege space outside of time, outside of all the imperatives of our own compromised lives, was suddenly penetrated by this savagely uh, mundane and uh, uh, unspiritual force, an army. And another very interesting thing happened. Americans love the underdog. I mean, it's a very nice side of America. We side with, uh, at least in our fantasy life, and very often in practice, with, with the weak. We are used to thinking that we will come in and save people, and we've done it many times. Uh, two world wars, we tried somewhat awkwardly in uh, Vietnam, somewhat more effectively, I suppose, in Korea. But this is part of our own mythology, that we are there for the little guy the guy getting kicked around by the big bully. And who was the big bully? The Chinese Communist Party and Chairman Mao. And we were in the middle of the Cold War, and we thought China was the Antichrist par excellence. And when China went into Tibet, we had our dream eviscerated, but we also were able to identify with Tibet. The Dalai Lama fled. His people were spilling out into India with tales of horror. And for us, it was a almost a passion play of the of Christ being defiled. And it was another profound way that we could emotionally identify with this curious land that most of us knew nothing about, except what we'd seen in Lost Horizon. So all of these things are a kind of a water table underneath what each of you is thinking and knows about Tibet, feels about Tibet, and feels about the relationship between China and Tibet. It's also the water table on which Hollywood's fantasies of Tibet have floated. And out of this rising water table have come an incredible host of films. Uh, not only is there Seven Years in Tibet, uh, some of you may have seen it, starring none other than His Holiness Brad Pitt, uh, <laughs> but there's more to come. Uh, Martin Scorsese's film about the Dalai Lama's life is coming out on Christmas. And none other than this reincarnated Lama, uh, Steven Seagal, the apostle of you know, the highest form of violence on television in the latter part of this century, who believes that he is a Buddhist Lama, the reincarnation of a 17th century Lama. He is making a film. He has got a, a script under, quote, development, as we say down south. And it is about um, the CIA aiding Tibetan guerrillas in the 50s, and of course, Steven Seagal will be out there with a machine gun hosing down the PLA and rescuing monks. Uh, he has a very rich fantasy life. Uh, I think sometimes his movies are more real to him uh, than uh, life itself. And uh, this would be one way to make this part of his fantasy a little more incarnate. There are a number of other smaller budget uh, films, feature films, one that was shot secretly in Tibet by uh, an Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, Paul Wagner, called Wind Horse, that's just being released. And there was another one just being shot. Uh, there is a kind of an epidemic, uh, and it makes one wonder what's going on. Well, I think what is going on is that we still yearn for this place, this lost place. And if we cannot have it in fact, and indeed if you go to Lhasa today, I mean it's filled with karaoke bars, Chinese restaurants, massage parlors, you know, there's traffic, 
there's nothing very uh, romantic about Lhasa today, except the Potal is sitting up there on its mountain and it's no longer the home of the Dalai Lama, it's a kind of a dead museum. But uh, all that aside, the hope springs eternal that somehow uh, Lhasa will restore itself. 2,000 monasteries were destroyed uh, during the Cultural Revolution, and I mean really destroyed. Many of them were just bombed. They were blown up with dynamite, knocked to the ground. Some have rebuilt somewhat, and a couple of the big ones were protected. But it was a terrible deracinization of, of culture. Because in Tibet, a lama, a high lama, is the reincarnation of a previous high lama whose soul reached a state of, of, of enlightenment but chose to become a bodhisattva rather than go to nirvana to come back down to earth to reincarnate uh, himself or herself in the case of a, of a dakini they call them in the, 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 the corporal being of a young child to help others become enlightened. Now these are called living buddhas in Chinese, lamas in Tibetan and they are the centers around which every monastery centers. And Tibet was a patchwork of little monasteries with one lama, one high lama, or low high lama, or big monasteries with the Dalai Lama, or with the Panchen Lama, the second highest lama. So when everybody began to be imprisoned and the monasteries were, were destroyed, uh, the high lamas vanished, and indeed there was no ability when they died to replace them. So the core of life, the monasteries, which is where the trading went on, because this is a nomadic society. It's where people came in to have festivals. It's where they got together to buy things, to worship. It was the center of life, and it died. And that was a very sad moment. So the films, in a sense, are trying to recreate this world, if not, in fact, at least as an illusion. And what is Hollywood? but the dream machine. It is the illusion factory of the world. Um, I went down to Argentina. Now, I'll tell you why I went down there. Uh, there's a wonderful Ogden National Limerick that occurred to me when I was in the Andes. I think it, if I can remember how it goes, uh, a 1L llama is a priest, a 2L llama is a beast, but I'll bet my suede pajamas there is no such thing as a 3L llama. Well, this was quite a relevant uh, little poem when you got to the Andes to find Jean-Jacques Hannault, the director of the Brad Pitt film, had reconstructed Lhasa in an alpine desert in Argentina. Why? Because he couldn't go to Tibet. He was shut out, just like all the people in the books in my office. They had to dream because so few of them actually got there. And where did Martin Scorsese go? He couldn't go to Tibet. In fact, the Indians were so scared of the Chinese they wouldn't even let them shoot in Ladakh, where there is a Tibetan Buddhist culture and society. So he had to go and recreate Lhasa in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco. It was a kind of a curious diaspora. But they didn't just stop at creating the facades of big, important monasteries and buildings. Each film flew in, in the case of Jean-Jacques Hannault and seven years in Tibet, they flew in 150 Tibetans and 150 actual lamas to play the bit parts. Now, I've got to quickly tell you the story of seven years in Tibet. It's about an Austrian mountain climber, a nice Nazi, it turns out, who went to climb a mountain with a Nazi-sponsored uh, trip uh, in the late 30s and uh, got busted when war broke out by the Brits. Put in a prison camp, he escaped. He went on the most harrowing, almost two-year trip over the Himalayas because Tibet was neutral, and he ended up in Lhasa. He spent seven years there, became a tutor of sorts of the Dalai Lama. He actually wasn't particularly interested in Tibetan Buddhism, and I've met and interviewed him, and I will not say he is the most spiritually enlightened soul in the world. Uh, but never mind, he wrote a fantastic book. Uh, a book that enchants everybody who reads it, and that's what the film is about. And Brad Pitt plays Heinrich Haar. And so, down in Argentina, springing forth like, you know, Athena out of the head of Zeus, was this incredible recreation of Lhasa. And when the monks and the lamas who had been flown in from India and Switzerland and the United States and everywhere around the world, when they arrived there on the set, in front of the Jokong, out in the Andean desert, 
they fell down prostrating themselves before this, this cathedral, which is the most sacred place in Lhasa, because it was so real. And they blessed it. Tears in their eyes, weeping buckets. They had come home to Tibet. The only problem was they were in Argentina. But it suggested, you know, the power of fantasy, the power that Hollywood actually has to recreate the semblance of reality. I was, it was a very difficult thing for me to get down there, but I felt it was absolutely important to do that because I was writing this book and I needed to actually be there to watch them recreate the dream, the projection of Tibet, the way Tibet was in the 40s when Tibetan culture and, and Tibetan society still cohered and had not yet been ripped apart by all of China's sort of revolutionary political uh, reforms. And so that's really what the movie has done. And if you see it, it's very convincing. There's a tremendous faithfulness to detail. Some of the script is, you know, maybe you might cavil with it a bit. And, you know, it's, it has, it's Hollywood in places. Uh, but then Hollywood is Hollywood. Uh, any film that costs $70 million is, is probably not going to be, uh, you know, the kind of film Martin Scorsese would make. His film is going to be very interesting to, to, to see. It's no stars, no Caucasians, nothing, just Tibetans. But there was this confusion the whole time between illusion and reality. And the effect on all of the actors, there were people from 22 countries down there, of living with all these Tibetans for month after month, reenacting Tibetan history, was profound. Many people became very, became very infatuated and dedicated to, to Tibetan Buddhism. They, they really became deep and very respectful friends of many of the Tibetans. There was a profound and curious interchange that I think rarely happens on any other film because of this blurring of reality and the Hollywood dream. But uh, do the Chinese get it? No. They don't think, ah, cuddly Dalai Lama, uh, you know, spiritually evolved, intelligent, rational, reasonable, uh, compassionate, uh, all of the things that we associate, they think he's trying to run away with part of China. He's a splittist. They think, ah, Tibet, that's the place the, the monks were drinking blood out of skull caps of murdered serfs. They're not lining up to, to go there on a trek or a tour. So what China sees when it sees Tibet is something very different from what we see because the projections that they put on it are very different. They're, they've been cultivated by 50 years of Chinese communist propaganda which views Tibet utterly differently. And they're very nationalistic about it. Very intelligent Chinese don't think that there's any grounds whatsoever for for Tibet to be autonomous or independent, and they think the, 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 the Westerners who are concerned should get out of their face, that they're meddling in the internal affairs of China, in Chinese sovereignty, and it's intolerable. So you can see it's a very different projection, a very different view of things. And it is this that lies at the heart, in a certain way, of why this is such a sensitive and such an emotionally supercharged issue because each of it sees it very differently. And there's great elements of truth in much of what we, we appreciate about Tibet or understand about it, and some of it is a bit romanticized. Some of it is really tells as much about ourselves as it does about Tibet. And the same with China. And so Tibet being this sort of empty place on the map 200 years ago, it got filled in with lines marking rivers and trails and mountains by the pundits. But what, when we think about, when we imagine Tibet, is very much our own. And what China thinks about when it imagines Tibet is very much its own. And it's all of these things that lie at the heart of the enormous discord and the enormous sensitivity that really animates this issue. And sometimes I think, you know, Tibetans in this country, some of them are pretty remote from Tibet itself as well. Many came out in 1959 and haven't been back. Uh, in a certain sense, as always, Tibet is more in our imaginations than in reality. This isn't to say that what China did there and is doing there is not an abomination, not hideous beyond description. One of the great 
tragedies of this century, in my view. It's only to say that um, Hollywood is powerful medicine. And um, when Hollywood gets involved, things tend to gain a life of their own that really has very little to do uh, with reality. And it's also to say that Tibet always had this evocative power for those of us in the West who, who were interested. Everybody dreamed of Tibet. Very few people actually knew it well. And those who did know it well, in a certain sense, also fed into the dream, just as Heinrich Haar's seven years in Tibet also became a basic sort of DNA building block of all the fantasies that are being created now by the movies. They're not bad at all. I mean, in a certain sense, it's wonderful that Tibet will get this attention. But it's simply to say that um, Tibet has really escaped uh, many of the corrals in which it once was confined and has gotten off into popular culture. Uh, and many people in Hollywood are become very infatuated with Tibet and Tibetan Buddhism. Some are very serious, very good people. Um, I can't really explain to you why each of them is. Uh, it's very difficult to sort of intrude and understand why religion is meaningful to anybody. It's, it's a very personal thing. But suffice it to say that we are in, a, in an age and in a period where Tibet has really captured our imaginations and is influencing, I think, in very subtle but profound ways the way we look at it, the way we look at China, and um, in a certain sense, the way we uh, are leading our own lives. Well, I think we'll stop here. I uh, thank you all for coming. That was Orville Schell from Portland Arts and Lectures in 1997. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for the Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from the Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn, on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at kolhan.com. Our show is produced by Krista Ligori for Radio and Podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joti Roy and Alana Phelan and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.